0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. At this point, the match is lit. The fuse is lit and it isn't going to go out. Gaza fighters possibly up against a losing battle and why. Pacifica host Garland Nixon breaks it down.
1: Hello, Garland Nixon here and uh the Biden neocons never get enough of war well they've got a second one they've got a second front opened in uh their world war three let's talk if i can ever for god's sake okay here we go let's talk <laughs> Hi, Garland Nixon here. A couple of things. Let's talk about this concept of a regional war, the concept of the U.S. trying to, you know, we're having this talk. The the Biden administration is trying to stop this thing from in the Middle East from spreading to a regional war. Okay, Uh, let's start here. The United States has ships in the area, has troops on the ground, has uh, using intelligence assets, right? Um, And uh, providing uh, weapons, providing intelligence. So the United States is in fact, the Biden administration is in fact involved in the assault on Gaza. No question about that. If, I mean, as an example, if someone, if I give someone a gun, if someone says, I'm gonna shoot, you know, whoever, that person over there, and I say, here's a gun, Here's the bullets. Here's where they are. Here, let me help you, uh, you know, what time they'll be there. Let me help you aim. Um, If you need more bullets, I'll give you more bullets. If you need a ride to the crime scene, I'll give you a ride to the crime scene. Um, It is preposterous to argue that I am not a part of the team that committed the murder, right? So clearly the U.S. is involved and might I add the exact same things are going on in Ukraine. So the U.S. is doing two things they've got a proxy war um proxy I don't know how proxy it is but let's just call it a proxy war in Ukraine and of course the uh Israel is in fact a U.S. Imperial outpost a military outpost so since I consider it and many people consider it just a U.S. military outpost in the in the in the Middle East the U.S. the U.S. military outpost is involved you know people are like Israel is the u.s going to help israel not help Israel? are we helping israel the reality is israel is a u.s military outpost and the united states is uh the outpost the u.s outpost is fighting in an assault on a civilian area and the u.s is in fact not sponsoring that intricately involved part of it i mean it's the u.s imperial outpost the u.s imperial outpost is fighting it's the u.s empire now there's talk about is this war going to spread? Will it spread? Well, let's look here. The Ansar Allah in Yemen has pretty much declared that they're involved and they fired missiles at US ships, apparently, and drones. They fired missiles and drones at Israel. They have now taken uh, an Israeli ship. Um, so has it spread? Well, we know that the Yemen Yemen is involved. In um, Syria, there, there are various they are various militias, they're involved in assaulting U.S. bases, the U.S. is fighting back against them, the U.S. is, uh, and and let's be honest, it's the same thing as in Israel in that the U.S. is illegally occupying Syria, and the illegal occupation is being fought by the indigenous people, right? So Israel's illegally occupying uh, Palestine. And it is being, um, you know, whether you call it legal or illegal, whatever, it's an occupation under international law. So the United States is illegally occupying Syria. The indigenous people are fighting back against the illegal occupation of U.S. bases in Syria. So we know that uh, Yemen is involved, right? The country of Yemen involved and the U.S. is fighting in that Red Sea area. We know that the U.S. is fighting with uh, various militias in Syria. The U.S. uh, bases in Iraq are being attacked which means that the U.S. is fighting with various militias in Iraq, right? Can anybody argue that this war hasn't spread throughout the Middle East? I mean, we're using the rhetoric. Will it spread around the Middle East? Could it spread around the Middle East? We're well, we got we we're trying to stop it from spreading around the Middle East. The fact of the matter is the U.S. empire is fighting in uh, Palestine. The U.S. empire is fighting in Syria, illegal occupation. The U.S. Empire is fighting in Iraq, illegal occupation. The United States Empire is fighting the the Yemen answer Allah. And the only reason the U.S. isn't fighting in Afghanistan is because the U.S. ain't in Afghanistan anymore, because if the U.S. was in Afghanistan, they'd be fighting the various uh, military outfits there would be attacking U.S. bases. And I'll add this, I don't believe that the various military units are going to stop after whatever happens, if ceasefires or anything else in Israel, I don't think they're going to stop fighting until the United States leaves. So the United States may be able to stay in Iraq. They may be able to stay in Syria, but they're going to have to fight to stay there. Now, what we have now is, and I'll put it something different. You could call it a regional war I prefer to call it a civil, civilizational war the way I see it right now. I mean, it's fairly obvious. The people of the Muslim nations of the Muslim regions in the Middle East have come to the conclusion that they, their sovereignty and their dignity, uh, is being attacked by the United States is being questioned by the United States. And now that that has happened, it's like Afghanistan. Afghan, the people of Afghanistan were never going to stop fighting, ever, never, ever. They were never going to stop fighting. The U.S. could have stayed in Afghanistan forever, but they would have to fight to stay there. The posi- See, it's like taking a position that says, I may not be able to run you out, but you got to fight to stay there, right? So and when someone says they're still there, well, I'll say this. Officially, they're gone. So it is what it is. If you think they're there, if they've got a base, I don't know. But whatever the case may be, if the United States, now they're the, the, the Muslim people, the Muslim civilization has recognized and come to grips with the reality that the U.S. empire is going to be in their region and that they're going to have to fight to eject them and that whether they can or can't eject them is irrelevant, they're going to fight them. They're going to fight them. You know, it's kind of the spread of the scenario in Gaza, in that people, you know, question well, the Gaza, you know, that why would Hamas fight or why would whoever it is fight in Gaza? Why would the Palestinians continue to fight? Well, they know they're not going to win. I don't think they're fighting to win. I think they're fighting. Because they're resisting what they believe is an illegal occupation that doesn't have to do with winning people don't understand the concept of fighting um, a righteous cause right that you don't necessarily fight a righteous cause quote to win. You fight a righteous cause because it's a righteous cause. If you look at history, there there's been a lot of people who, during their lifetime, you know, I bring up, I, I remember, you know, I brought up uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and Frederick Douglass and people like that because I, you know, read their books. And at the time that they were doing whatever it was they were doing, there was no hope, there was no prayer. They lived in an apartheid uh, uh, in apartheid America, and there was no hope or prayer that in their lifetimes it would change. But They did what they did because they did it, because they felt it wasn't right, that it was unjust, and they were a person who stood up for justice, justice, even though it didn't happen, it wasn't going to happen in your lifetimes. The righteous fight, and you can argue whether or not, I'm not arguing the point that it is or isn't righteous, I'm arguing that the person who fights the righteous fight says, this is something that I got to fight for that I got to stand for, and I'm going to do it. And the concept of whether or not they're winning is not their focus. The concept of their focus is we're going to fight. In the instance of the Palestinians, their concept is we're being occupied and we're going to resist the occupation. Now, if you say, well, Why would you do this and you're going to lose, you know, people and things are going to go bad? Why would you fight when things are going to go bad? Well, you know, as as you might know, what did Algeria lose? Eight, seven, eight, nine million people in resisting the French occupation. Eventually they won. You could argue. You could make the argument, well, that's too many people. It wasn't worth it. You might as well have just accepted the French occupation rather than lose those seven, eight, nine, how many millions of people it was, right? But the fact of the matter was they weren't doing a mathematical formula about how many people they were going to lose. They were being occupied. They were facing imperial occupation, colonialism, and exploitation. And how if all of them died, they were going to die fighting, you know. Um, Again, go back to the French resistance go back to um, Nazi Germany and uh, that res- that um, occupied a lot of countries and within those Poland, et etc within those countries there were often resistance oftentimes uh, more often than not the resistance in a lot of these countries you know Nazis hated communists oftentimes they were led by communists socialists trade unionists etc led to, led a lot of these resistance uh, movements it's just a fact of, of uh, a historical fact but the bottom line is, And I'm not, that's not a judgment, good, bad, or indifferent. But my point is that there were resistance movements. And you know what? There were times when the resistance movements, you know, whenever they would do something, the Nazis would react in a brutal manner and kill lots of innocent civilians, men, women, children, blow up towns, do all kinds of terrible things, right? That's what happens. Um, You can look at the Nat Turner Slave Rebellion. It was horrible, you know. If you read "The Fires of Jubilee," a great book, I read it. Well, I listened to it on audiobook. And what do you find? Well, as a you know, it was brutal. They went out and they killed all the least slave owner people, slaughtered them, cut their heads off, men, women, I mean, it was unthinkably, it was it was brutal beyond all you know human beliefs. What they did, um, but slayed, slavery was brutal beyond, beyond all human beliefs, and it created a a, you know a, a subsequent resistance movement that expressed the level of brutality that that system um, exhibited and afterwards what happened after the nat turner slave rebellion a lot of slaves died you know a lot of slave owners went in and they accused various slaves of rebelling when they weren't and they just you know grabbed them out hung them men women etc a lot a lot of hundreds and hundreds of slaves maybe even thousands were killed as a result of the nat turner rebellion right So one could argue, well, they shouldn't have done that because it cost the lives of a lot of slaves. But I would say the nature of the Nat Turner Rebellion was there were people whose families were being sold, torn apart, raped, murdered, worked to death, et cetera. And the level of brutality that they experienced created a a mirror effect of that brutality that expressed itself in that slave rebellion. And so you can argue whatever the Palestinians may do, that the repercussions may seem, you know, uh, so great that it would st- that they, they maybe they should or shouldn't do it, that the um, violence and people that they're killing killing is, you know, is, 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 is over the top. But the bottom line is that is the nature of what occupation, a violent occupation you know sadly and unfortunately creates a violent resistance a brutal and violent occupation creates a brutal and violent resistance and that's what we're dealing doing i'm not judging it i'm not putting a um a good or bad uh perspective taking good or bad perspective on them i'm just evaluating it is what it is you know that's the way it happens every uh action you know science right every action has an equal and opposite reaction and now what we see is this after you know, of many, many years, many, many decades of what we consider by the U.S. Empire a brutal occupation of the entire Middle East and the Muslim lands, right? Saudi Arabia to, you know, to Iraq. I mean, they've got the U.S. has troops in Saudi bases all over Saudi Arabia, Qatar, you name it. So the U.S. has bases all over. So the people in the Middle East see a combination of bombing, brutality, and violence. They see you know, colonialist, uh, 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 imperialist uh, America in their region, taking their sovereignty, taking their independence, um, killing their people. And I think what we have now is the natural pushback region wide. They have to bamboozle the American people into believing that the United States has a, not just a right, not just a right, but a duty to maintain bases in the Middle East, in the lands of the Muslim people, which we have no right, no duty whatsoever. In fact, as I said, under international law, it is clear they have a right to armed resistance. They have a legal right to armed resistance. And the question becomes this, because here's the question here, the discussion to me, really, that's not being had, and it can't be had in the United States, but it should be had, and that is the foundation of this whole thing is resistance war conflict with a state actor such as iran or yemen or whatever the case may be or conflict resistance war with a peoples with a civilization with a, you know, the Muslim lands, they have a long history of a civilization, of a way of life, of of a culture, of everything, doing things the way they choose to do them. Whether the U.S. likes it, agrees with it or not, that's irrelevant. They have centuries, they have thousands of years of living their life in their land the way they choose to live it. And now the U.S. comes in and says, "We're go- you've got all of this oil now. And so that means that we're going to now dictate to you how you're allowed to live, who's allowed to run your countries. We're going to draw the lines for where this country goes and where that country uh, goes. And the Muslim people are basically, as I see it, are simply saying that that's not going to happen. You can stay here. We ain't telling you, you can't stay here, but you're going to have to fight. They're never going to stop. At this point, the match is lit and and, and the fuse is lit and, and it is not going to go out. The The Muslim people are not going to now. Now you pushed them too far. You know the US Empire, they're thugs. The Biden administration are gangsters. They'll kill you.
0: And coming up next on Arts Express, The Sopranos is so much more than just gangsters, it's about capitalism. Steve Sharipa, alias Sopranos gangster Barbie Bacala, talks why The Sopranos is more popular today in its revival reruns, why in the current climate of culture cops the show would not have been made now, what's in store in his upcoming post-strike episodes of Blue Bloods, and more. First, some scenes from The Sopranos, then Steve Sharipa.
2: Marriage, or any partnership for that matter, is a give and a take. We are a family.
3: So we're gonna deal with this as a family. All due respect, you got no idea what it's like to be number one. pussy. don't let anyone ever make you feel like you don't have any options, because you got friends.
2: Friends that would die for you.
4: Any thoughts at all on why you blacked out?
2: I don't know. Stress, maybe. Is everybody in my life bananas or what?
3: Problems at work. I
4: got problems at home. Oh, for you! Kill me now. Stab me now, please. You are his mother, and I don't think for one second that you don't know what you're doing to him. Grandma just called. Started crying and hung up. So what? No eating now. Hey! hey.
1: I'm not getting any satisfaction from my work either.
4: What line of work are you in?
1: Waste management consultant.
3: You may run, not Jersey, but you don't run your Uncle John. Just when they thought I was out. They pull me back in. (laughs) Our true enemy has yet to
2: reveal himself. I'm warning you, do not do
1: it!
3: Hi Prairie, how are you?
0: Okay, how are you?
3: I'm good, I'm good.
0: I wanted to ask you, what have been the challenges for you of switching psychologically from portraying a gangster in The Sopranos to the other side of the law as a detective in Blue Bloods?
3: You know, uh, I don't like playing a gangster. I don't like, (laughs) you know, to be honest, I was kind of a nice gangster, you know, uh, Prairie. uh, So I, I don't like that. Uh, other stuff and i'm not a gang i'm not a fan of the mob you know people always want to bring that up when they meet you or you know send you things i I, i'm not a fan of mobsters they're bad guys they do bad things to people to innocent people you know i mean somehow they've been portrayed as these cartoon characters that are wonderful which is very far from the truth. So, you know, after The Sopranos, I was on the show for five years where I just played a suburban dad, a business owner, and I enjoyed that tremendously. And I think that very much helped get away from that gangster kind of thing. Mm. Uh, and so I love playing a cop, and I run into cops constantly, and I ask them if they believe me as a cop, and I say they do, which I, uh, I'm very proud of that. And, uh, Uh, I I, I prefer to deal with cops than with gangsters. Mm. Gangsters used to come up to you in in a restaurant and give you tips uh, (laughs) on uh, choking people and doing things and bringing stuff up. Mm. Now I have police officers. I'm very pro-cop.
0: What can you tell listeners about what In Conversation with the Sopranos will be all about, and what's in store for them to experience?
3: So it's myself and Michael Imperioli, and Vincent Pastor. And uh, we have a a great opening act, Joey Cola, he's a comic, he does the warm ups for Drew uh, Barrymore show and Rachel Ray. uh, So he opens the show. And then uh, we show some clips from the show. He brings us out and we answer prepared questions. Uh, and it's all comedy-driven stories, funny behind-the-scenes stories that uh, only a person that was there and involved with the show would possibly know. Uh, and then we, uh, it's very loose. Every show is different. Uh, I learn something new every show from either Vincent or Michael, you know. Uh, and then we do a Q&A. So it's a, it really is, we've been doing this for a number of years. We toured Australia with it in 2019. We've done everywhere from Atlantic City to Boston to Providence to D.C. to Staten Island and on and on and on. And it's a lot of fun. And uh, you'll have a night of a lot, a lot of laughs, I promise you. And you'll learn a whole lot of stuff if you're a soprano fan. And there's some die-hard soprano fans that have seen the show way more times than I have, or we have. Uh, So you got to be on top of your game. And then we do a big Q&A at the end. So uh, if someone ever wanted to ask a soprano a question, I was there to chance.
0: And what do you anticipate with the suggestion being provided to the audience that, quote, all topics are on the table, even theories on The Sopranos' controversial series for now?
3: Yeah, well, we answer, we'll answer any question. You know, and of course that always comes up because the controversy of uh, uh, the ending, of course. People have different opinions. I've uh, flip-flopped, you know. Uh, I, I thought he was alive, now I think he's dead. Uh, Michael feels the same way at the moment, you know. Uh, Vincent talks very... Much about how he was killed off at the end of season two. He was one of the biggest characters, one of the first times a series regular character that's gotten killed off. Uh, you know, we talk about, we've been asked the question, could it be made today? I probably, I'm probably, probably going to say no. The Sopranos probably uh, would not be able to be made in, in uh, this day and age, you know, with uh, all the the violence and the cursing and all the kind of things that uh, were involved in the show, I probably, I don't think a network would uh, air it today.
0: And you're currently filming Blue Bloods. What can you say?
3: Filming tomorrow is my first day. Oh, okay. I thought, yeah. Well. We were supposed to start July 19th, and tomorrow is oh. my first day.
0: What can you say what's in store coming up on the show for audiences or not?
3: Uh, we, we're going to do 18 episodes. Uh, the show will end. I think they're going to air uh, nine starting in February and then another nine in the fall. Mm. Because of the strike, everything kind of got yeah. delayed. Uh, <clears throat> everyone knows it. I started on the show in 2015. <clears throat> I think the show started, if I'm not mistaken, in 2010. Mm. Uh, so it's been around and uh, it's it's a lovely place to work and all the actors are great, and, and I enjoy it very much, and uh, shooting here on the streets of New York, so it's been a good ride, you know? Yeah.
0: And what do you see as The Sopranos' enduring influence, in particular on the crime and gangster genres, as well as the portrayal of Italian-Americans as on-screen characters?
3: You know, uh, a few things. So there's a whole generation of new Soprano fans with streaming, there's more people watching The Sopranos now than did uh, back then. Mm. You know, only uh, back then, HBO only had 11 million subscribers. Right now, it's all over the world, literally all over the world. It, it, it never was like that. Uh, the show is massively popular in Australia and the UK, as well as fa- as far away as Saudi Arabia. Uh, Kids were too young to watch it then. They're watching it now. I think the show holds up very well. As Mm -hmm. far as the Italian-American thing, which has been controversial the whole time, uh, listen, this is not every Italian-American is a mobster. Mm -hmm. And if you believe that, then you're just silly and ignorant. Mm -hmm. Uh, This does exist. And this is a slice of Italian-American life that David Chase and the writers uh, wanted to tell. Uh, And so I think it was done very well because the show is so much more than just gangsters. It's about a man and his family, and it goes very deep, and it's very smart, and it's about capitalism. Uh, It's much more than just a bunch of guys shooting and killing and hanging out with strippers, you know.
0: And in what ways would you say The Sopranos is about capitalism?
3: Oh, it's absolutely about capitalism, about the uh, the, the greed, the greed of Tony, the greed of his wife, the greed of Carmella, Mm. who wants jewelry and fur coats and a house at the beach, but yet she's torn. Her husband is a gangster, and he cheats on her. He does this, and there's a, a wonderful scene where she goes to see a psychiatrist, and he says, Go now. Pack up your bags and leave now. Run now. And she doesn't ever do that.
0: Okay, thank you so much, Steve, for joining us on the show.
3: Thank you very much, Ferry. Nice talking to
0: you. Okay, bye. Bye. And more information about In Conversation with the Sopranos continuing tour, including this Sunday, is at Talkingsopranos.com. And now on Arts Express.
4: Hi, this is Jack
5: Shalom, and of course that was the voice of arguably the finest singer who ever lived, Ella Fitzgerald. And I'm happy to have on our show today Judith Tick, famed musicologist and Professor Emeretta of music history at Northeastern University, and also author of the new biography of Ella Fitzgerald titled Becoming Ella Fitzgerald. Hi, Judith. Hi, Jack. So, Judith, why instead of your naming the book Ella Fitzgerald, it's Becoming Ella Fitzgerald?
6: I titled my book Becoming Ella Fitzgerald because she learned to respect her musical genius over time. Over her six-decade career, she began to fulfill the right combination of gifts that she had. This, This voice of irresistible charm, perfect pitch which made every note of melody just tingle with perfection, and these big ears, as Quincy Jones once said, which could (laughs) memorize anything she heard. She had a, a phonogenic memory, but it really has to do with her perpetual curiosity and her need for
5: challenge. Let's go back to her beginnings. How much formal musical training did she have, and was there music in the home she grew up in?
6: She talked about her mother, Tempe Fitzgerald, as possessing a somewhat high classical voice and always bringing home records. The family had a record player in 1930, and she could walk the streets of Yonkers and Harlem and hear radio coming out. So she did have music around her. Uh She got very limited music training in the Yonkers system. She talks about getting this half credit when she was in junior high school to satisfy music, but she did learn how to sight-sing through what we call solfege syllables, you know, putting do-re-mi syllables underneath notes and learning how to sight-sing. I mean, uh-huh. she even composed her own songs.
5: In Ella's life, probably the two most important figures in her life artistically were Chick Webb and Norman Grands. And we'll, we'll talk about Norman Grands later, but let's talk a little bit about Chick Webb. Tell us why he was so important in Ella's life.
6: By the time Ella met him in 1934 or 5, I guess it's 1935, he had become well-known in Harlem as the conductor of this great swing band at the Savoy Ballroom. And in addition, he was a virtuoso drummer, and he knew how to kick his band like nobody else. At least that's what Duke Ellington said. When he hired Ella, he didn't want no girl singer But soon he realized what he had, and he let her join the band for jam sessions. He didn't legally adopt her, but she became a protege, and he took pride in her achievement, and he understood what she brought to the band. So this man, as she said in 1937, was like a father to
5: me. In uh, Chick Webb's band, she changed from just being a a girl band singer, knocking out a couple of verses, to a full-fledged singer, didn't she?
6: That's a perfect way of putting it. And that happened rather quickly. But if you listen to the first recording that she made with Chick Webb that got on the Billboard charts, it's called, "'Sing Me a Swing Song and Let Me Dance.'" And you could hear her joy in being part of the band and in doing a shout out to Chick Webb within the song. It was terrific.
4: Sing me a swing song and let me dance. Old Chick is beating.
5: Even as she innovated with her repertoire, she kept returning to some of the same songs. And did she change her arrangements over the years?
6: Yes, she did. And another song that she loved called Imagination, which she recorded in 1940, not long after Chick died, and she took over the orchestra. If you hear Imagination in 1940, and then you just quickly go to imagination, you know, say 15 years later. It's like Uh. just a different world.
4: Imagination is funny. It makes a cloudy day sunny. Makes a bee think of honey. Just as I think of you. Imagination is funny, it makes a cloudy day sunny, makes a bee think of honey, just as I think of you.
5: You mentioned that uh, she took over Chick Webb's orchestra when he died. I think that's not commonly known. Were there a lot of women orchestra leaders at the time, or was that unusual?
6: It was very unusual. There was precedent. But to have a woman, a, a singer, take over such a major swing band was certainly startling. What I used to read in the books was, well, she really didn't conduct the orchestra.
4: <laughs> and she really
6: wasn't the manager. Mm-hmm. Well, without her, that orchestra would have fallen apart. When did
5: Ella begin doing the bravura scatting that we hear in some of her classic recordings all through her career?
6: You know, you can trace it to some early Chick Webb recordings. You can hear her start to do the little ornaments that precede scat. But uh-huh. the real turn towards scatting came because she began to emulate instrumental solos. Let's take Flying Home. The solo by Illinois Jacket in that first recording that um, became so famous was just adored by people in Harlem and they could whistle the tune. So she knew that. She knew if she could take over that tune and improvise on it, people would understand her bravura imagination.
4: Yeah, that
5: How did World War II affect Ella's career in changing musical tastes?
6: You know, I can really sum it up by two bands. Chick Webb's band, which had been celebrated as hot, suddenly became known as Blairy, and in came this much softer, smoother sound of Glenn Miller, because people during the war needed a comfort zone. And so she learned to please her audience and developed a kind of softer style that she called sweet.
5: Well, after the war, uh, Ella and the musician Ray Brown married, bought a house in Queens, and adopted a baby boy. Tell us about that.
6: The link between Ella and Ray Brown is Dizzy Gillespie. Dizzy Gillespie was a huge influence on Ella in around 1946, 1947, because he represented progressive bebop. And Ray Brown was all about sophisticated bop. He was playing bass in Dizzy Gillespie's band. And when Ella, quote, went dizzy, which is how she sometimes put it, she went on tour with Gillespie in order to make it financially viable. And she really absorbed bop. So they fell in love on that tour, and they got engaged. They married, and by the time they adopted Ray Brown Jr., they were working together in the same ensemble known as Jazz at the
5: Philharmonic. But being on the road so much took a toll on her home life, didn't it?
6: It certainly did. She couldn't have done it if she wasn't living within the milieu of an extended family, She counted on her relatives, particularly her Aunt
5: Virginia Williams. Did Ella know that she was one of a kind?
6: It's so interesting that you ask that question. No, at least I don't think that she thought of herself like that. When I first began to write this book, I encountered the notion that she had no sense of her own worth. Norman Granz used to say she really had no sense of her own worth. Quincy Jones sort of said that, but I think that was overstated. I think that she grew into her gifts and exercised agency about them right from the very beginning, only she didn't take on the persona of a diva until fairly late in life, when she was around Frank Sinatra, (laughs) (laughs) and they both did Las Vegas.
5: Well, what did it take from the musicians who surrounded Ella on the bandstand to keep up with her?
6: It depends on the musician, doesn't it?
5: If you were
6: Lester Young and you were playing with her and you were trading fours, you used to say, I'm not going out there. She's kicking (laughs) ass tonight. I'm not doing it. You go out, Flip Phillips. You compete with her.
5: I once asked the uh, vocalist and dancer Maurice Hines, who opened for Ella, what he learned from her. And uh, he just laughed and said, you don't learn from Ella. You just watch every night with your jaw dropping. She's a force oh, of nature. Isn't that
0: wonderful?
6: So often what musicians said, they did respect her and saw her as a phenomenon, particularly Oscar Peterson, who traveled with her in the early days of JATP. That is what he stressed. In fact, that's how I began to write this book, because I read his diary. He gave such detailed accounts of how she was on stage that it just blew me away, and it blew away all those shreddings of how she didn't understand this, or she didn't know that, and it just gave her such stature.
5: Well, we've got to stop here for now. We'll be back next week with part two of Becoming Ella Fitzgerald, published by Norton with author Judith Tick. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. How high the moon
4: The stars I have moon does it reach up to Mars? No, the words may be
0: wrong to this song. We're asking... and coming up next on the show.
2: Hi, this is the u k arts Express, and my name is Brett Gregory. Tonight's guest is an academic, an author, an activist, a filmmaker, and a singer from Glasgow in Scotland.
7: Hey, my name's David Archibald and I teach film studies at the University of Glasgow.
2: Great voice, David. Anyway, as well as teaching film, what are your wider research interests in the subject?
7: I'm the editor of the Political Cinema Series at Edinburgh University Press, so perhaps that may indicate something of my general research interests.
2: And what other projects has this led on to, specifically?
7: I recently completed a book on Ken Loach, which is published in the series. And just now I'm working on a project which attempts to link feminist activists in Cuba, Catalonia and Glasgow through collaborative no-budget filmmaking. And I'm also doing another research project which explores how a band, a music band, may be able to make history with a capital H.
2: So what's your personal perspective on cinema as an art form?
7: In common with the pioneers of third cinema a radical film movement from what is generally now called the Global South. I take the view that cinema can be utilised as a generator of theory, that we can think and that we can learn through making.
2: I like that. That's interesting. I reviewed your latest book, Tracking Loach for Arts Express, earlier this year, as well as for the arts and politics website Culture Matters, which is based in the northeast of the UK. Out of curiosity, what was your rationale behind the book's title?
7: I called the book Tracking Loach because I'd been tracking the British filmmaker Ken Loach in different capacities for some decades, as an audience member for many, many years, but also as a journalist, including writing articles for the great New York-based journal Cineist, and as an academic with various chapters and articles. When I heard that Loach was coming to Glasgow to film The Angel Share about 10 years ago, I got contacted him and asked him if I could look over his shoulder while he was making the film and I proposed that I would write a book about his celebrated working practices. Thankfully, he said yes, so the book is an account of tracking Loach in many ways, over many decades, from a political perspective.
2: What would you say is particularly significant about the films Ken Loach has directed in the first quarter of this century?
7: What's noticeable about Loach's work is how the films are utilised to foster political discourse beyond the screen and Loach's work, whether it be The Wind That Shakes the Barley, which deals with Britain's role in Ireland and the Irish Civil War, or I, Daniel Blake, about the conditions facing unemployed workers in Britain. What's noticeable is the significant way that they shift the discourse away from the one set by the British right-wing media.
2: And um, how would you personally assess Ken Loach's impact on, for example, the field of cinema as a whole?
7: Loach has been a socialist for his entire adult life. His contribution to radical cinema is unmatched in breadth alone on a global scale.
2: British filmmaker Ken Loach collecting his second Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. I. Daniel Blake is a stark portrayal of a widower from Northern England who, after a heart attack, struggles to get help from an archaic welfare system, in which he meets a single mother in a similar situation.
7: The film is about the cruelty of bureaucracy. And it starts as a comedy, and it finishes seriously. But we met many inspiring people, people who find food to feed the hungry people in our country, which is a hugely rich country. It's for for those people who, who are struggling against the cruelty of bureaucracy, whichever country. So, of course, the film is for them
2: and the prizes for them. 79-year-old Loach has had 12 films in competition at Cannes over the years. They include Palme d'Or winning The Wind That Shakes the Barley in 2006, a film set against the backdrop of the Irish War of Independence in which two brothers fight a guerrilla war against British forces. Now, in this cold-hearted, corporatized society of ours, What would you identify as a key practical value of independent artistic expression?
7: I think that artworks help to set agendas for conversations to come into being. I've spent a long time attempting to foster and nurture alternative ways of talking and doing, being and making. There's a parallel, perhaps, in the invaluable work that alternative media, like your own radio station, do. They are vital in creating a new set of possibilities to emerge. That's why I'm delighted to be here speaking today.
2: Yeah, it's all about digging deep, excavating the new, the unknown, the hidden, and sharing the wealth. So, Glasgow, a place that's always brimmed with energy and ideas and the arts, culture, and particularly grassroots politics. What does this tell us about the city's psyche, its outlook, and its history?
7: Glasgow is a city which is haunted by a proletarian ghost. The city is well known for its industrial past and for a radical heritage which goes alongside it. The spirit of collectivism which developed when it was a major industrial centre continues to operate in much of the city's cultural scene. It's manifest, for instance, through the various ways that artists are open to working together. There is a collaborative ethos and that's connected to the spirit of collectivism which was forged in the shipyards and factories. And I'm interested in exploring and have all been interested in this for a long time, exploring how to converse with that ghost and see what might transpire.
2: But your passion for and your pursuit of these creative conversations, as you say, has taken you further afield, beyond Glasgow, beyond Scotland even.
7: I'm currently working with Nuria Arauna Baro, an academic from the Public University of Tarragona, and with four groups of feminist activists in Havana and Glasgow, cities which are twinned, and Villanova y la Geltru in Catalonia, the city in which Nuria resides, and Matanzas in Cuba. These two cities are also twinned. It's a project which tries to connect these activists through dialogical filmmaking, building translocal connections and we have an event at Havana Film Festival in December next month at which women from all the four cities will meet for the first time it's a beautiful project and i feel very lucky to be part of it so although i create work which is deeply rooted in the city always interesting to build international connections and alliances beyond it
2: admirable stuff man your students at glasgow university are lucky to have you right your band the tenementals Tell us more.
7: The Tenementals is a wild research project and a lot of fun. It attempts to recount the history of Glasgow in song and asks what might history look, sound, and feel like if it was created by a group of musicians. It also asks not whether artworks or songs can be history, but whether history with a capital H can be artworks or songs. It's wild because it refuses the strictures often imposed on conventional academic research and find its own path within the artistic community. It runs to its own beat, untethered by authority or control. That's really the only way it can be alive. It has to do whatever it has to do. And the history that it constructs is a a history of fragments. It's a radical history of a radical city told in a radical way.
2: And your latest song, which we'll be actually playing out with, has got a
7: compelling, radical history all of its own. Although we set out to record a a history of Glasgow in song, we're we're certainly not parochial. Far from it. Our outlook is international. In January, we played a support gig for striking workers and we wanted to do a cover. And we were thinking through options and I was speaking with a filmmaker and academic friend of mine, Holger Mohopt. And we were talking about German songs, which were popular during the Spanish Civil War, and he mentioned the uh, mur Soldaten" or "Peat Bog Soldiers" in English. It was first performed ninety years ago this year, nineteen thirty-three, in a concentration camp for leftist political prisoners. And although it's been covered in the in English by a number of you know quite famous uh, singers, Pete Seeger, Paul Robeson, it's not particularly well known in Britain. We asked Holger's daughter, Lily, to sing it because I'd heard her very, very beautiful but delicate voice on some films that Holger had made previously. The first time I heard her singing in the recording studio or in the rehearsal studio, I knew instantly that we had to record it.
2: And the release is a bit different?
7: We've just brought out two versions, one in German and English with a new translation and one the rarely performed six-verse German version. We hope, I suppose, to introduce an old song to new audiences in a new way. It's a song about opposition in the most difficult and darkest of times, and I think that that has resonance.
2: Yeah, The Darkest of Times pretty much sums a lot of things up at the moment. What are your thoughts on the future? Do you see hope?
7: You know, when I was a teenager, people often used to tell me that I'd grow out of the radical socialist ideas which I held. Socialists are often presented as dreamers and fantasists. But if we look at the catastrophe which capitalism has created in terms of global climate change, the true fantasists are surely those who would have you believe that it can be resolved under capitalism. It cannot. Socialism, for me at least, remains the hope of the future. And while some academics often talk very vaguely about living differently or about being differently, or working in a post-capitalist world. I suppose we're not afraid to name our object of desire, a democratic socialism in which workers have control over their own lives and where human beings live in harmony with the world rather than ruthlessly exploiting it in the interests of the ruling class.
2: That's very honest and rousing, David. The struggle often feels lonely for many, myself included. But thanks to you, not today. It's been brilliant having you on the show. I'm really happy to have finally met you.
7: Thank you, Brett. It's been great to talk with you and uh, good luck with all your great work. Cheers, man. This has been the UK Desk
2: for Arts Express and I've been Brett Gregory. And, as promised, here are the tenementals with their latest single, The Haunting and Historical Pete Bog Soldiers, which is available now via Strength in Numbers Records on Bandcamp.
4: Wohin auch das Auge